As Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he remains in a cell. He is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But he chooses to call himself in his letter to the Ephesians the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles and later a prisoner of the Lord. He is concerned, and one might even say preoccupied, with the future of the gospel. In our passage today, in 2 Timothy 3, we will see the evil deeds that men do in the last days and the need for Timothy to prepare, to continue in the face of opposition. In such a situation, Timothy is called to contend for the truth. And Paul will give the third charge of the letter. Thus far, we've seen two. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In chapter 2, the second charge, I've sort of summarized as the way of the Christian may involve suffering, but it certainly requires enduring. And so we read, endure hardship with us as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then later on, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now Paul is prepared to give the third charge. But he begins by setting the stage, the background against which Timothy will be charged to stand for the faith, to contend for the faith. Let's look at the first verse first. Second Timothy 3.1 But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Paul introduces this charge with an emphatic command to Timothy to mark this, or in the ESV, understand this. In the King James, this also know. But it's sort of strange because one might say, doesn't Timothy already know the things that Paul is about to describe? And in fact, isn't this just an expansion of what we saw in the first letter? If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, it begins by talking about the last days as well. well let me just read to you. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, or in later times, some will abandon the faith and following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So, so why repeat himself? I mean, isn't it self-evident that there is opposition to the gospel? Paul himself has been arrested. He has been chained. He is imprisoned because of his loyalty to the gospel. And we saw at the end of chapter 1 here in Second Timothy that everyone had repudiate the gospel in Asia. In chapter 2, Timothy is called on to endure, recognizing that this, in fact, may involve suffering. So why does Paul say to Timothy, understand this, mark this, know this, when, in fact, he already knows these things? I think he does so in part to emphasize the fact that the opposition that Timothy is facing is not a passing phase. It is, in fact, a permanent characteristic of the age. It has been suggested that Paul fears that Timothy and others, including ourselves, might think, okay, things are really bad right now, but if we just sort of lie low for a bit, let the storm pass, and then we can sort of come out of our foxholes and then continue with the faith. Paul gives us no such assurance. I think we should also understand this and be clear about the perils and troubles that may assault us if we stand firm for the gospel. Paul does this by writing about the last days. And when we went through 1 Timothy 4, I dealt with this at length, and I will 
I won't do so here. I will only mention two passages. The first one is taken from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, when in fact he's quoting from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will, see, will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And then in the opening of the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We need to be clear about this because either Paul and the apostles were mistaken, uh, thinking that the end was coming near, or they understood, I think correctly, and we should as well, that the coming of the Messiah marked the beginning of the last days. That is, when Jesus comes into the world, from that point on until when Jesus returns, these are the last days. With these markers, our perspective should be different. Because we live in between. We live in between the incarnation and the return of Jesus. We are to recognize that we live in between these two events. I think the simplest way that I can put this is that the church only exists in the last days. If you have the church, you have the last days. If you have the last days, you have the church. And the church has been around since the time of Jesus, and it will continue until Jesus returns. So, last days, church, they go together. You can't have one without the other. We exist as God's people in between the incarnation and the return of Jesus. So, what Paul is describing, or will describe to Timothy in this passage, is not something that's going to happen in the future. That we might imagine that right before Jesus comes back, those are the very last days No, what he is describing to Timothy is not a future occurrence. It will be, I think, in the future. It's a permanent condition. But he is describing something that is true in the present. And so he gives Timothy instructions. He gives him the charge that he is to live and contend for the gospel. Now, I would point out that I think at times things may get worse. If you look at verse number 13 in uh, chapter 3. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and I think Paul is open to the fact that sometimes in the last days are worse than others, but generally speaking, the condition he describes, the conditions are in fact true in the last days. So we need to be clear. There will be terrible times. There will be times of difficulties, perilous times, as the King James puts it, they will not be uniformly terrible or perilous or difficult. But we as God's people should recognize that we live in the last days and these are the characteristics, these are the conditions that we should expect. So before we get to the description, we are living in the last days. Jesus brought them with him when he came. These last days will include times of peril and stress. They will be the result of human activities, as we will see. We are to understand this. We are to be clear about it. We are to be prepared for it. So, now a description of those days. This is found in verses 2 through 9. Interestingly enough, it is more a description of the people of those days. In verses 2, 3, and 4, the moral conduct of those people 
in verse number five, their religious observances. And then in verses six through nine, their proselytizing zeal. Um, Paul gives us a catalog of vices here, something we find him doing in other letters. But in this list, at least, in this catalog, we find at least six items that are not found elsewhere. We do find things, however, that he's mentioned in Romans chapter 1. I find that interesting. We'll look at them briefly. First of all, the moral conduct of people in the last days. Verses 2, 3, and 4. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. In these three verses, we find no fewer than 19 descriptions in which Paul describes the actions, the conduct of the people of the last days. I I don't want to go through each one of them and give an extended description. I would point out something, though. Paul begins with that they are lovers of themselves, and he ends with that they are not, in fact, lovers of God. In between, we have at least two other mentions with regard to love. Um, They are lovers of self. They are lovers of money. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think, in fact, what we're being told is that the people of the last days have misdirected love. Their love is not what it should be. By the way, some English translations have love the word in English, when in fact it's not there in Greek. So in the ESV, it says not loving good in verse number three. Um, love is not the word that is found there in Greek. And in also in NIV, without love, the ESV has heartless, and not lovers of the good. I think the translators are trying to convey to us what Paul was, and that is at both extremes and in between, what we find are people whose loves are just really messed up. They love themselves rather than loving God. And as a result, they love money. They love pleasure. Their loves are just all messed up. This is a characteristic of those people. And as a result, we find the other 15 expressions that Paul gives us of their behavior here. The first three expand, I think, on the business of self-love. They are, by the way, the first two appear in Romans 1 as well. They are boastful, which I think speaks to their language. They boast in their speech. They are proud, which is they are proud in their thoughts, so an external and internal reality. And they are abusive. Um, The word in Greek is actually blasphemoi, from which we get blasphemy. Uh, And it recalls what Paul said about the false teachers at the end of 2 Timothy. The malicious talk is how the NIV puts it, but it's the same word. It is because of self-love that they lack love for others. So they boast about themselves. They are proud in their hearts. And in fact, they are abusive toward others. The next five can be seen in terms of family life. All of them are negative in form. And in Greek, it begins. That means the word begins with an A, the way that we do dis or un to make something negative. So disobedient is a good example. There are five things. And these are things that you would expect to find in families. You would expect to find obedience, but in fact they are disobedient to parents. Now in scripture we are told to honor our parents. At least until adulthood we are to obey them. And thus I think at this point Paul is referring to children in terms of their obedience. And he moves on, that they are ungrateful. 
There's an absence of appreciation for what their parents have provided. They're unholy. And he was like, wait a minute, how does this deal with family? Well, the word that is used speaks of reverence and respect. And so I don't think Paul is speaking of here that their attitude toward God is wrong, but rather their attitude toward their parents is wrong. Um, There is a lack of respect or reverence. They are without love. That is, they lack human affection. The ESV, as I said, has heartless. It is part of the created order, in fact, that parents and children should love each other. And they are unforgiving. Unappeasable is what we find in the ESV. They're irreconcilable. It describes a situation in which people, I think, who are not adults, are so much in revolt that they can't even... They can't even stand to talk to their parents. They're not willing to discuss any matters of disagreement. They are, in fact, unforgiving. In an ideal society, the relationship of children to their parents should be marked by obedience, by gratitude, by respect, by affection, by reasonableness. But things are not as they should be. And we find, to differing degrees, the absence of these virtues because we are, in fact, in the last days. The last seven expressions can refer to society at large. Slanderous, uh, interesting enough, literally devils. The word in Greek is diaboloi. They are guilty of speaking against others, especially behind their backs. They are without self-control. And I think we understand what this means. But I would suggest to you that we think in terms of being ungovernable, That is to say, a person who has no self-control is more likely to resist any governing by outside authorities of his or her behavior. So it isn't simply that someone's out of control or without control, or they lack self-control, there is that. But a person who lacks self-control will not listen to anyone else. They will not listen to authorities. They will not have somebody else tell them how they should live. They are brutal that is untamed like an animal. They lack any positive response to order. Not lovers of the good. Other translations have haters of the good. They are strangers to all goodness. Treacherous, the word is used in Luke 6 of Judas Iscariot. They are rash in terms of their thoughts and their deeds. And they are conceited. They are puffed up with self-importance. By the way, this last item here, that they are conceited, is something that Paul has written about the false teachers in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.4 He is conceited and understands nothing. Come back to that in a minute. In this catalog of 19 things, we find unsocial and antisocial behavior. All of these are the result of being self-centered and self-love. It is a godless self-centeredness. We're reminded of the two great commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. But in the last days, in the days of the church, we find that people are rather lovers of themselves than lovers of God. And we must remember that the gospel provides a radical solution to this problem. Now, if you think about it, If you were faced with a society that had all people that acted this way, what would your response be? Well, the temptation is to think, let's put in a regime. 
and not an authoritarian regime, a regime with authority, but a totalitarian regime, a regime that deals with every aspect of a person's life and behavior. You might do that, but you still cannot change a person's affections. You cannot change their heart. What is required is, in fact, a new person, a new birth, a new creation, in which, rather than being focused on myself, rather than loving myself, I love God, and as a result, I love my neighbor, as I should. Rather than focusing on myself, I focus on others, beginning with God and continuing with my neighbor, the people God has brought across my path. It involves a reorientation of our thinking and our conduct so that we become God-centered rather than self-centered. And the result will be, or begin to be, that we will love God, we will love God's world, and we will seek to give and to serve as God has given and served. So in verses 2, 3, and 4, we just have this list of horrendous, horrible people who are behaving very badly and thinking just as badly. In that light, verse number 5 may come to you as a surprise. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. It might come as a shock to discover that the people Paul has just described, who lack any common decency in civilized society, let alone God's laws, that they are religious people. We would expect, in fact, that they would be against the church. They would not want anything to do with religion. But, in fact, they have a form of godliness. It is true. This is true. Look at the history of humanity. As shameful as it is to admit, oftentimes religion and morality have been more often separated than united. You may remember when we began First Timothy that the first principle of keeping the faith alive and passing it on to the next generation is to remember that the church, the body of Christ, those called by God, may have people in their midst who behave badly and who believe wrongly. We find this in the Old Testament, in many of the writings of the prophets. Amos writes of this, making use, that in fact, I think this is in Amos too, that the garments that they take with them to worship and the wine that they drink in worship are in fact things that they have taken unjustly. I, you could even say that they've stolen these things. They have taken from others what was not theirs. They have not shown any kindness or graciousness to those in need. But then these are the things, in fact, that they give to God in worship. It would be almost as though somebody went out and robbed somebody on Melrose and then came in and put the money in the offering basket and said, here is my worship. Their immorality had, in fact, invaded their religious practices. The Lord, through Isaiah, addresses this issue. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who has access of you, this tramping in my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. But it isn't just in the Old Testament that we hear this. We hear Jesus addressing the religious leaders of his day. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. The same sickness has continued in the last days. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That is to say, there is external show. There is a sense of religiosity, but there is no, in fact, internal reality. It is religion without morals. It is faith without works. And we should not be surprised that Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with them. This, along with what was found in verse number four, I think points us in a different direction than we might have anticipated. It suggests to me that Paul is writing about those who profess to be Christians. When Paul writes about the last days and the disobedient to parents and the whole list of things, he's not talking about people out there, if you wish. He's talking about people in the church who are behaving badly. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with the matter of a person in the church who is living in sin, and he wants the church to deal with it. The reason, they, the reason they haven't is they misunderstood a previous letter that he had written to them. And let me, write, let me read this to you. I have written you in my letter, this is a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Apparently this is what he had written to them. So now they have a sexually immoral person in their church. What are they to do? Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindler, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside Expel the wicked man from among you. I take this then to mean that what Paul is writing about here in this private, this personal letter to Timothy is not about the people out there. It's about those who are part of the congregation who are not living as they should. When Paul gives us a list that are expressions of self-love, he is not talking about unbelievers. He is talking about those who claim to be believers those who claim to be Christians. And then verses 6 through 9, he talks about the zeal that they have in trying to convert people to their cause. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 9. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. 
As surprising as it may be that the kind of people Paul is describing are filled with godless self-love, malice, that they are in fact religious, um, we find not only do they profess religion, but they are in fact those who actively propagate that religion. The language that is used sort of hints at military operations, something that is not direct and open, but it is furtive, it is secretive, it is cunning. If you wish, they come in the back door. They ambush rather than coming in the front door. They gain control. They lead captive, the King James has it. Their victims are weak-willed women. The King James has silly women. Now, let's be very clear about this. Paul is not making a statement about all women. Okay. Rather, he is talking about the women that these false teachers have targeted. And now it becomes clear that, in fact, Paul is talking about false teachers. And he has been since the first verse. That in the last days there will be false teachers who will try to mess with the church. And, first of all, they look out for easy targets. And the targets are these weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. These are the easy targets, the targets that these false teachers go after. There are weak-willed, which points to them as being gullible, unstable. Some have suggested intellectually weak. I don't know that I would go that far. But the teachers are, in fact, taking advantage of these infirmities. They are loaded down with sins. That is to say, they have done things that they regret, and who hasn't, but somehow they are carrying this around with them and they're not able to let it go and the false teachers are using that as a tool against them. They are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. And for me at this point, it is no stretch to imagine that in fact the false teachers are sexually involved with these women. This would explain what we saw in 1 Timothy. Let me just read to you a number of passages there. First of all in chapter 2. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then in chapter 5, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned to follow Satan. The false teachers have wormed their way into these homes, into these households, which would seem to indicate widows, because the husband is gone, they are now in charge of the household, but they've not been left penniless. They have some substance, and the false teachers target these women. I think the final aspect of their weakness is found in verse number 7, that they are always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. 
But could it in fact be a transition in which now Paul is speaking directly about false teachers? In verse number 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Here, Paul is telling the story of uh, Moses and Aaron as they appeared before Pharaoh, showing the signs that God had given to him. And there are court magicians who are able to duplicate these. Um, I don't know if you know this, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would, but uh, when Aaron went in and he threw down the staff, it became a snake. Well, the magicians were able to duplicate that, except that Aaron's snake ate up their snakes. But that wasn't the only one. When Moses turned water into blood, we read the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Then the next plague was frogs. The magicians did the same things by their secret arts, we are told. Then the next plague was gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. So at least for a series of signs and plagues, the magicians are there. We can do that. We can do that. We can match that. But at a certain point, the fact that they are false is proven by the fact that they cannot duplicate what in fact Moses and Aaron have been able to do. So we read in verse number 9, So they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. Their success, in quotation marks, will be brief, it will be limited, it will be transient. And Paul is confident that their folly will be clear to everyone, as it was in the case of Janus and Jambres. We may not like the fact that we live when and where we do. We might be distressed by it, by what we see in society at large, by what we see in those who profess to be Christians and their success. And yet we know, in fact, that they are not saying what is right. They are not living as they should. Error may spread and be popular for a time, but in the end it will be exposed and the truth is sure to be vindicated. I think that's why Paul writes this to Timothy. I can't help but wonder if Timothy is wondering what is going on. Jesus came into the world. He has defeated death. He has been resurrected. He appointed apostles. They have done amazing things. And it seemed for a while that we were riding this, this wave of, if you wish, success. And suddenly we've hit a wall. And now we find that we not only face opposition from those outside, but within the church itself there is corruption and there is sin. Paul is letting him know that the truth, in fact, will be vindicated. This is the clear lesson of church history. Our library upstairs is now open once again, and we have a lot of books on church history. And there have been numerous, numerous heresies that have arisen over the centuries. And the only way we know about them now is because of history books, because they're not around anymore. But for a while, they were great. They were flared up. They had success, many followers. And as time went on, they disappeared. God has preserved his church. We will not live long enough, I think, to see it. We know of cults that have arisen in the last 100 or 200 years. And for us, we may think, well, they're going to be around forever. They've been around as long as I've been alive. We can't see them sort of fading. I think Paul wants us to know that the truth, in fact, will prevail, not these things. We should not fear. We should not be distressed. 
we should recognize instead that we are living in the last days, which is marked by self-love, which results in anti-social and anti-law behavior. In the Articles of Faith of the Church of England, Article 26 has something fascinating to say. Although in the visible church, the evil are always mingled with the good, and sometimes evil people possess the highest rank in the ministry of the word and sacraments. And there's a recognition that, listen, just because somebody's in church doesn't make them a good person. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing the right thing. And the Church of England would say, just because somebody's up here as the pastor or the parish priest does not mean that he is not evil. But if you read Article 26, it goes on to tell us that the truth will win out. It will win out. We need to remember that the visible society of professing believers, there are people of immoral character and conduct, of purely external religiosity and behavior, and of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith. They are lovers of self, they are lovers of money, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and their neighbors. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, the Lord willing, we will see next Sunday Paul's instructions to Timothy, which is the third charge in the face. He's painted a picture now of the last days. What is Timothy? What are we to do in the face of these things? Just a part of what he reads, if you look at verses 13 and 14, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from those or those from whom you have learned it. In other words, continue. Stand firm in the faith. But I don't think that's the first thing that comes to mind for many people today. First of all, I think when people read Second Timothy 3, they think that it refers to society at large. And so they use these verses as sort of an indictment of society, and particularly in line of culture wars, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and look at these people. They are lovers of self, they are disobedient to parents, and just the whole list of things. And as a result, rather than reaching out to people with love and the gospel, we in fact reach out to them with condemnation. What Paul is talking about here is among ourselves as believers. We need to keep each other straight. And obviously there are dangers there as well. We might become uh, judgmental rather than gracious toward one another. But Paul's focus is on the church and not society. Paul is not saying, boy, you know those people out there? They're ungrateful. They're rash. They're brutal. Just, just look at those people out there. Not at all. Not at all. Rather, he is warning Timothy that because we live in the time of the church, these are the last days, we may in fact come across people who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. In the church. Okay? Not out there. We should reach out to people who, in the world with affection, with love, with the gospel. But I think it, we don't want to admit 
that there are problems in the church from time to time, but there are. And it makes it a lot easier for us to just sit in judgment on those who are not part of our group. It's us versus them. No, we are to reach out with the gospel. In the meantime, we are to be aware that as God's people, there may be very, very difficult times. And not because of persecution out, coming from outside of the church, but because of corruption within the church. And with that background in mind, Paul will then tell Timothy that he is to continue in the faith. And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we who have been saved by your grace, whom you have rescued from sin, may we see that we are not to sit in judgment on those who have not yet been rescued, but rather by your grace reach out to such people. At the same time, we are to recognize that even within those who claim to be your people, we will find self-love, love of money, love of pleasure, and not love of God. It's much easier for us to think in terms of dichotomy, us versus them, the church versus the world. Instead of seeing ourselves as rescued sinners reaching out to others, sort of fold our arms and pull ourselves back. May we not be fearful or distressed when we see things in the church as they should not be, when we see cults, those who use scripture supposedly to put forward false heresies. May we realize and remember that your truth will win out. That if somehow you could grant us the ability to see into the future, we would see that these things will be gone. Just as so many cults and heresies have disappeared in the past. We are to stand for your truth. Your truth will remain. It will be vindicated. I thank you that you have called each one of us here today to come and worship you. To come and be in your presence and to be in the presence of one another. To talk to you and to talk to one another. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.